Hey, I'm Brandon Katz. And I'm Jean Bentley. This is Must Watch Netflix Edition, a conversation between two pop culture junkies to help you navigate the endless library that is Netflix. Today, we are discussing the anticipated second season of Netflix's horror anthology, The Haunting of Bly Manor, and we'll also get into Adam Sandler's new movie, Hubie Halloween. Shall we start with, uh, with Bly Manor? I'm, I'm down. Let's go. Let's dive right in because, you know what, nothing says October like haunted houses and scary stuff, which this show has. <laughs> <laughs> I would say there's definitely a good spook level to the haunting of Bly Manor. Now, for anyone who may not know, it is the sequel season to The Haunting of Hill House, which was Netflix's big sensation last year. It's an anthology, so you don't need to have seen the first season to jump right into the second season. I haven't seen a single moment of season one. Gene, you have, correct? Yes, I have. I got you there. So season one, The Haunting of Hill House, was very creepy. Creepy scary. This is coming from me. Uh, this is my definition of the genre as a non-horror person, so I understand that there are actual terms for this, but for me, a newcomer to the space, I would describe it um, Hill House is like creepy and scary, lots of jump scares and honestly genuinely terrifying at times and very suspenseful and very tense and all of that. And I think that Bly Manor, on the other hand, um, is more um, kind of emotionally <laughs> scary and, yeah. and a little less boo, you know? <laughs> and I like that because I will make a confession here that people will probably make fun of me on Twitter for, but it's okay. When I was five years old, my older brother sat me down and made me watch I Know What You Did Last Summer and Nightmare on Elm Street with him because he was afraid to watch him alone. It absolutely traumatized me. I blame my current day insomnia on it. I, I did not watch <laughs> another horror movie for probably 15 years after that. No exaggerated exaggeration, not till I was probably in college. And I've slowly come around on the genre, like things like Jordan Peele's kind of social thrillers, things with a point that aren't just gore and horror. So for me, Bly Manor was very much in the sweet spot, more spooky than outright horror. Yes, I'm sorry for giggling at your misfortune, no, but okay. that it's is very funny. Yeah, it, it's it's funny in that that is a bonkers idea to yeah. do to a small child. I remember renting Scream from the video store with my friend for a sleepover in middle school, and we basically got to the Drew Barrymore part and we're like, "Ooh, no, thank you, mom. <laughs> could you please drive us back to the video store so we can rent a rom com or something?" It was not the move. So. We are not two horror aficionados is essentially what we have learned just now. <laughs> All right. Well, that's good that we're at least on the same page because I feel like Blind Manor really straddles the line well in which it's probably not super scary, but scary enough for horror fans. And for those that don't like it, it's enough of a kind of romantic, poetic, gothic mystery story to really capture you. Yeah. So basically it is... Loosely inspired by the novella The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. Um, and the show takes a lot of the cast members, most of them, to be honest, from um, Hill House and puts them in this new show, uh, new season as different characters. It's a different setting. There's no continuation other than the creative team is the same. But that's 
pretty much it. Um, Mike Flanagan, uh, who brought us um, some really lovely uh, movies. I believe uh, Dr. Sleep. Yeah, and Gerald's um, Game, which was also a Netflix original Stephen King adaptation. I like this guy. Yeah, absolutely. And he has some really talented uh, actors in his arsenal. So I completely get why he wanted to hire them again for this show. And basically, uh, Victoria Pedretti, who was the star of You's second season, uh, returns. And she is playing uh, basically a 20-something young American woman in the 80s who goes to England to become a governess for these two children who were orphaned for some reason that we kind of, we, we don't really know at first what happened with the family. And we also don't know why this girl's kind of bumming around England <laughs> looking for a job to take care of uh, other people's children. <laughs> I won't lie. It took me until about midway through the season for me to realize that she wasn't Hillary Duff. <laughs> I, this the resemblance, at least to me in my dumb brain was striking. And I was like, you know, this is weird. I thought Hilary Duff was working on her Lizzie McGuire remake. So I had to look it up. I'm like, oh, wow, completely different human being. Yeah. And you know what? She is different. She was wonderful. But I absolutely get it. Very Hilary Duff vibes. Um, and yeah, and she, she kind of shows up and meets the uh, eclectic staff of this, um, of this house. Uh, there are some really great actors, um, including, um, I don't know if you watched iZombie, yeah. Um, but Raul Coley from iZombie is in it. Um, I was very excited about that. He's sporting a fantastic mustache. Mustache game is very strong in this <laughs> one. Yeah, mm. and so kind of like we said, it's it's definitely more romantic and gothic and um, emotional, I would say, compared to Hill House. Yeah, and I guess what I, I want to talk about kind of what we liked about it and what maybe we didn't like about it. Because to start, for the first few episodes, I was so-so on it. I was like, this is fine. They're taking their time to kind of set up the entire conflict and establish the characters. And then I thought from episode five on, it really hit its stride and became something quite beautiful. I, I think it, it revolved around this idea that grief is just love with nowhere to go and that true ghosts, true haunting is when everyone in your lives has, has forgotten about you and, and moved forward. And when you, when you lose that and your sense of self, that's when your identity goes. And that's when you become this kind of ghoulish specter haunting the living. And I thought there was something very poetic and, and thoughtful about that idea of memory and legacy. Yeah. And I like that it's like grief as a specter, but not as like some horrible thing. It can also be beautiful. And I think that that is particularly resonant this year oh. um, when, you know, a lot of terrible things are happening in the world, but also we've all had a lot of time to kind of sit and <laughs> contemplate everything in our lives. And, and this is a really nice way to think about the past and loved ones as, more of a presence rather than some sort of horrible, um, you know, unfulfilled, you know, like think about the typical ghost story, right? It's like, I didn't complete my final mission on earth and now I'm gonna haunt you until I can get some peace. This is more coming to terms with yeah. um, your fate. 
not so much unfinished business as it is, like you said, the the kind of spooks and scary stuff in Blind Manor is much more internal, much more personal. It It isn't this cosmic event that is going to disrupt the whole world. It's really just a, an interconnected story of a few ha- small handful of characters. And that specific focus, keeping it relatively small scale really worked for me. You know, there's something about a chamber piece, mostly one location that just intensifies the emotion. Yeah, absolutely. And I also feel like it was nice to kind of see these familiar phrases who would pop up from Hill House, but it wasn't just like, hey, we're bringing in our buddy and we're just going to have them do something because that's crazy. It all makes sense. It all feels right. And the ways in which these actors are kind of incorporated into the story is really natural and and doesn't feel jarring at all, which is another really nice, nice aspect of it. So it sounds like I'm someone who hasn't seen Hill House. I liked Bly Manor. You're someone who has seen Hill House. You like Bly Manor. All right. So it seems like kind of everyone on the spectrum can get something out of it. Now, in terms of things that maybe, let's call them nitpicks, let's call them criticisms, whatever. I thought to begin with, there was a lot of framing devices. It starts with a woman telling a story in the 2000s and then immediately flashes back to where the main story takes place, which is 1987. And then throughout the rest of the season, there are further flashbacks within flashbacks. At a certain point, I was just like, all right, all right guys, let's, let's keep it a little bit more streamlined. It just was too much homework and too much stories within stories at a certain point for me. Not that it ruined the whole show, but you know, it doesn't need to be that complex. This isn't the inception of horror Netflix shows. Yeah, listen, I imagine that Mike Flanagan was um, writing this while he was doing Dr. Sleep, and maybe that did have some kind of effect on, uh, on <laughs> the writing. And I did notice that as well. I will tell you, though, uh, the times when I was a little bit lost, I just kind of went with it, yeah. and it ended up okay. Uh you know, when you take that act, you might need to rewatch some scenes or maybe get to the end and say, oh, okay, now I'm going to watch it again, knowing how all of these things are connected and maybe it will give a new layer or give some new meaning or really just help me understand it better. I don't know. Um, But (laughs) that was my tactic on this one and it worked. It could have backfired though. I will tell you that. Yes, and you took a gamble and it paid off. And I like I like the confidence that you showed by doing that, Gene. Thank you. The <laughs> confidence I showed by shrugging and going, mm, I'll get it. Yeah, exactly. What's interesting to me too, as I was watching it, Netflix is kind of in a transitional period right now. Mindhunter is done for the foreseeable future, maybe forever. Glow has very sadly been canceled. Stranger Things probably isn't going to go past four or five seasons so it's kind of nearing its end the witcher to me i know most people disagree with this but is borderline unwatchable i think it's terrible even if it's massively popular would you say that the haunting of hill house the haunting of blimera this anthology is one of netflix's foundational originals right now i would absolutely say that but i would also say the thing about netflix that is really interesting is that you know their whole strategy is that they have a little bit you know, a little bit of everything. And I think that while some shows like 
Hill House, like Stranger Things, like Glow, like Mindhunter even, um, catch on a little bit more. They also have, you know, five other shows that people aren't talking about as much. But because of that strategy, it means they're constantly making new things and you never know what is going to hit and what is going to become kind of the next big thing. So I think it's kind of maybe a plus for Netflix to be doing that because any of the things that they have had in the works for the past year or two could that haven't aired yet could potentially be a new one of those. Um, and you've seen it this year when all of the broadcast networks, their um, production schedules were completely messed up. Yeah. And Netflix was like, well, we film our stuff a year in advance, so we're chill. <laughs> so, you know, it's like it's been working for them right now. I mean, there's so much upcoming content that we are going to tackle on this show. We got The Trial of Chicago 7 from Aaron Sorkin. We've got Mank from David Fincher. We've got season four of The Crown. We've got The Queen's Gambit with Anya Taylor-Joy. So there are some buzzy upcoming titles that may slot into these, wow, this is a building block property for Netflix in the future, whether that be TV show or film. But yeah, for now, it seems given the response and kind of sensation that season one of Haunting of Hill House was, that yeah, season two and moving forward, this is a big, big property for Netflix. And clearly, as we've seen in terms of box office on the big screen, the horror genre is quietly Hollywood's most bankable lane. Who would have thought that? Yeah, exactly. And it's also like, obviously, there are really big budget things that you can do with it. But then you look at, you know, Blumhouse and all of the stuff that they're doing on really low budgets and really interesting stuff. And it's an interesting strategy, but it seems to be working for them. I, I feel like, you know, no matter the trends in entertainment, horror definitely is a genre that has stuck around. I mean, would we call Nosferatu horror? Maybe. <laughs> like, I, you know, go. German expressionist film. Did you know we were going to talk about that right now? Listen, we're going to hit you with so much eclectic versatility on this show. You are going to learn so much and just become an expert. And then we give you full permission to pass off our insights and opinion as your own. You know, at the next fancy cocktail party, make yourself look smart. Exactly. Exactly. We're, Please. We're here for you, listeners. We are here for you. <laughs> now, before we kind of tie a bow on the Haunting of Blind Manor conversation, I want to personally shout out Oliver Jackson Cohen, who I think does a really, really good job in this show. Probably his biggest role outside of Haunting of Hill House was as the abusive asshole husband in The Invisible Man. He didn't really have much of a role in that, but he, he was fine there. I thought he was kind of a, a show stealer in, in this. And I agree that um, the iZombie actor and, and many of the supporting characters were very good, but I mean, man, he, he nails the accent, the kind of sinister tone, the, the slight sympathy you have for his character. I really was impressed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, shout out to his chest hair. Um. <laughs> A fair, very fair shout out. The man had the 80s look going. I'll give he that. He really one. did. I don't know if that was him committing to the time period um, or just, you know, his glorious self. But like, congratulations to that man. It was great. <laughs> See, this is the hard-hitting insight we need to give to fans. German expressionist film and chest hair. 
you know what else what do you else need? do you need <laughs> not to get too off topic in a, in a show that is focused on netflix but oliver jackson cohen is a name that has been floated around by fan casting for moon knight on disney plus and after seeing this I can see him pulling off the kind of deranged, a little bit violent, a little bit evil type of kind of personality that that character has. So that would be very cool in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And I also wanted to shout out Tahira Sharif. She is the actress who plays the uh, previous governess of these children. And I hadn't seen her in anything before. I thought she was absolutely fantastic. Cannot wait to see her in anything else in the future. Uh, She was really great. And uh, also, uh, Tania Miller was amazing. Those two women really helped bring a lot of depth to kind of all of the layers of the story. And I thought they were really wonderful. So you've heard it here first, two thumbs up from both of us. That that might be rare on this show moving forward. We're going to have to keep track. But now sticking with the spooky theme, let's switch to the latest Netflix Halloween addition to their original programming, although maybe not quite as scary. <laughs> that is Adam Sandler's Hubie Halloween. You had a chance to watch it, right? I sure did. Oh, okay. I sure did. Okay, so I, I want to hear your thoughts because I'm going to just say this up front. I thought this was borderline unwatchable. And it's sorry to, to say to Adam Sandler, I love the man, but oof, I, I struggled through this. What did you think? You know what? I thought that this was perfectly fine. I know that doesn't sound like a ringing endorsement, but sometimes (laughs) that is all you need, right? Like you just need something that you can put on and watch and not be too concerned about it. There's not terrible amount of plot to follow. There's a lot of fun characters from Sandler and all of his buddies and people he's worked with in the past. And, you know, I find him hit or miss. Uh, obviously, as a kid, I was very into it, as you know, we, as all, we were. all were. I feel like that sense of humor um, is definitely uh, something that kids, you know, identify with. But obviously, adults too. This is not to say that Adam Sandler is for the children only, but um, think of the kids, Gene. Think of the kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, as I have gotten older and, you know, my tastes have changed a little bit, it's not necessarily the type of humor that I visit often. So I haven't really watched a lot of new Adam Sandler movies in, you know, in this vein. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm definitely more familiar with the present day Uncut Gems Adam Sandler right. versus the, um, you know, silly movie Adam Sandler. But, you know, he does a silly voice. He has some weird mommy issues. Like, I don't know, it feels pretty, pretty standard for his movies. And I thought that this was totally fine to watch. Yeah, for anyone who, who doesn't know about Hubie Halloween, uh, essentially Sandler plays this small town nice guy who's also kind of the, the town idiot. Everyone makes fun of him. Everyone gives him a hard time. But he's just this compassionate guy who, who's only you know, job in life to, according to himself, is to make sure everyone has a fun, safe time on Halloween. So he's trying to keep kids safe. He's trying to solve mysteries in the town. And he just keeps getting made fun of. Now, listen, one thing I did like about the movie, because otherwise I think it, it really just wasn't that funny or, or entertaining, but the movie opens with Ben Stiller reprising his evil orderly role that we first saw in Happy Gilmore. 
So that means that Hubie Halloween and Happy Gilmore take place in the same cinematic universe. Yes, I'm going full Marvel with it. What do you think Happy Gilmore is up to concurrently as Hubie Halloween takes place? I truly <laughs> could not tell you. I, I hope he's, you know, I assume he's very rich somewhere. Hope so. You know, I, I, I don't know. Maybe not in this you know, quaint New England town right. of Salem, Massachusetts. <laughs> so this was basically a, a, just a parade of cameos of all of Sandler's buddies. There's a few callbacks to his previous films like Happy Gilmore and a couple ones, but I just didn't get real laughs out of it. That's, that was kind of my problem. Even for like a silly comedy that you're just watching on the couch where you, where you rightfully said it just can be perfectly fine. I found myself checking my phone, checking my email. You know, was there any moment where you were like, wow, that was a good bit, a good joke? You know, I did enjoy Steve Buscemi's whole deal. And obviously that has a lot to do with like Steve Buscemi being great. Um, But that was really fun. I liked that you could recognize that two of the young actresses in the film were very clearly his daughters. They look so much like him, which was very funny, but they were great. Um, I really enjoyed uh, Noah Schnapp from Stranger Things. Who looks like five years older than he did in the last season of Stranger Things. How are they going to get around that? Seriously, he he is like a young man, which is how time works, but it's still jarring to see it with your eyes. <laughs> I mean, he, he probably grew four inches and without the bowl cut, like looks like a, a human being, not like an 80s character of a human being. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And he, he was great. He was. So even though I didn't like Hubie Halloween, I will say I understand Netflix's reliance and business relationship with Adam Sandler because believe it or not, despite the kind of critical uh, shellacking his Netflix movies have taken, they're really important to the business. Uh, So several years ago, before Adam Sandler signed his first Netflix deal in 2014, Netflix realized based on the movies that they were getting from their deal with stars that no matter what the region was, Sandler's movies were among the most watched content on the entire platform. And even though, you know, his aging audience resulted in kind of a lot of box office flops in the the mid-2000s and early 2010s, he kept driving viewership on Netflix, especially in markets where his movies hadn't even opened. So it's important because when people go to theaters, they want these name brand franchises. But when they're browsing for something at home to stream, like you said, perfectly fine, familiar shtick, familiar face. It really does the trick, especially, you know, you don't need movies with visual effects to get the job done when you're watching from your couch. So Netflix basically saw that not only were his fans finishing the movie to completion, which was a huge metric for them, but they were also doing multiple projects. Uh, So they would go from one Sandler movie to another or a similar type of raunchy comedy, and they were loyal. So essentially, instead of them bill, you know, spending millions of dollars on billboards and TV ads like a traditional movie would have to, they realized that they could just build mini franchises out of Sandler. He helped them develop what has become their taste clusters, which are essentially a loose collection of stars, directors, concepts, genres that drive extended engaged viewing with algorithmic recommendations. I know I'm throwing a lot of fancy schmancy streaming terms at everybody, but it's important to realize that despite whatever you think about these movies, they perform consistently well for Netflix and help them 
essentially create the algorithm that we know today. And there's a reason why they extended their deal with him in 2017, why new movies are coming. So I just find the business behind Sandler's crappy Netflix movies pretty fascinating because it speaks to our audience tastes, speaks to business strategy, and it speaks, speaks to what works on streaming versus theatrical. Yeah, I think it's also a really fascinating, like, evolution of the direct-to-DVD sequel that, you know, the stars didn't sign on for, but they want to make some more money off the successful movies, so they rush it in. So people are at, you know, the video store and they pick out the, the, you know, oh, I didn't know this had a sequel. Well, it didn't really. It's just full of randos, but loosely has the same name. Uh, it feels like that, but still with all of the A-list talent involved. <laughs> still with millions and millions of dollars thrown at it. Yes, that too. That too, for sure. Now, have you seen any of his other Netflix movies? I have not. This was my this was my first. Oh, wow. This was your introduction to the, <laughs> yeah. the latter phase of Adam Sandler's career. Yeah, well, exactly. Hon- honestly, there's some on there you, you might enjoy. If you thought this was perfectly fine, I think... His last one with Jennifer Aniston, which unfortunately the name escapes you right now, but it's kind of this silly murdery mystery and, you know, they're framed for doing something. You know what? Just kidding. I did see that. You know how it it just didn't live in my brain very long. It was also perfectly fine. I think that's how I feel about Adam Sandler. (laughs) I think that was kind of the pinnacle of, of his Netflix empire, which isn't saying much. But, you know, not bad. And Jennifer Aniston doesn't get enough credit as a comedic talent. Oh, yeah, she's great. There's a reason she became, you know, a superstar from Friends. She's hilarious. She's charming. She's great. But, yeah, it's it's just funny to see someone who was so funny in our childhood, someone who's still very funny. I mean, 100% fresh. His Netflix stand-up special is really good. But continue to make these movies that are, are clearly low-effort him just hit basically an excuse for him to parade around all of his friends and have a good time for a, a two month shoot or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Get your friends their uh, SAG points for their health insurance, you know, like do all the things. Yeah. Cast your daughters, cast your wife as a reporter. I love it. Sure. Why not? I did not realize that was his wife as, as the reporter. That's very funny. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, it's essentially a family affair for Adam Sandler, you know, his friends and frequent collaborators and also his literal family. (laughs) And there's something really wholesome about that, to be honest. He has said, and I respect this about him, he has said in the past that, especially of some of his terrible movies that were like the nail in the coffin for his box office prowess, he said, yeah, essentially they came to me with a pitch and I said, what if we just put it in Hawaii for the sole reason, for the sole reason that he could take his family on a Hawaii vacation. And like, if something's going to be bomb, bomb and, and be reviled by critics, I appreciate the honesty that he was like, yeah, I know. I just did it for me and my family. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's no shame in that. Whatever. Well, any last points about either Bly Manor or Adam Sandler before we wrap this up, Gene? You know what? I, I think that they are both appealing to, to people who want to feel a little Halloweeny, but not get too spooky with it. They're, they're not scary. Uh, well, you know, Bly Manor is a little scary, but you know. Bly Manor's spooky. 
spooky. And, I think, and this is goofy. So like, if you want to yeah. just hit both those notes with your family, with your significant other, it, they kind of fit for both. I don't, I really wouldn't say there's a demographic that wouldn't like these. Uh, I mean, small kids should not be watching Blind Manor unless you want them no. to turn into me where they didn't watch another scary movie for 15 years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Unless you want to scar for your children, scar your children. Ooh, unless you want to scar your children for life, like maybe don't do that. That's not it. Although I guess being locked down with the whole family in the pandemic, that's probably already happened. There's probably a good amount of scarring going on right now. <laughs> if nothing, we are all collectively scarred at this present moment. <laughs> that brings us together. <laughs> uh, well, that will do it for us. New episodes of Must Watch Netflix Edition post every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next week, you guys. Until next week.